0: Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno, and you're listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in, everyone that's been sharing the podcast with their friends, sending us comments, posting on the Instagram and whatnot. Once again, you can follow us at at K-R-A-Z, K-R-A-Z plus one on Instagram. Send us some messages, let us know what you think, send some comments. It's all much appreciated. Before we get into the episode, I just want to give a shout out to headcount.org. For all of you that are confused about voting right now, go to headcount, they can send you in the right direction, figure out how to do your absentee ballot and whatnot. It's just so important right now that everyone goes and votes. We need change, we need everyone to get out to the polls, so please do so if you have the ability. I also want to give a shout out to Osiris Media who helps me put this show together. They have a lot of other great shows. One in particular is called Past, Present, Future Live, which I was a guest on the very first episode of that show. Go check it out at OsirisPod.com. So this week's episode is part two of my interview with Questlove. Last week, we talked about the history of the roots, his musical upbringing. And at the end of the episode, we start to get into how his household became the epicenter of what would later become known as the neo-soul movement. Now, if you're around my age and were in your 20s, in the early 2000s, this era for music was somewhat of a golden era. Uh, The Soulquarians, D'Angelo, J. Dilla, all the music that was going on right then, I feel like really changed the landscape of the music industry. Coming out of an era where R&B music had become really slick and pop-driven, the Soul Quarians were adding a certain grit to the music and a different feel to the music that we'll get into in this episode. Really introduced by Jay Dilla and D'Angelo, this kind of offset rhythm and feel really kind of changed how people played music after this. You started hearing drummers play differently, guitarists play differently, and there was a lot of records during that period that were made by them or emulated that sound. And they even brought in legendary artists like Al Green and Booker T actually got in the studio with the Roots and the Soul to kind of reinvent their sound. So let's get into part two with today's Plus One, the Almighty Quest Love. So where we left off was you guys had kind of moved to Europe for a bit um and, and we or
1: did the jam session Yep.
0: Yeah, and then and you were kind of we were talking about uh Black Lily was set up and you guys were doing the jam oh
1: sessions. yeah 99 yeah yeah so <clears throat> what I, what I'll say is that um the seeds that the seeds that were planted in 1996 with the jam sessions that we learned from living in London back in like 93 94 Um, It all came to fruition by 99, 2000. um, It outgrew my living room. And now Sunday nights is consistent at wetlands in New York. And uh, Tuesdays are at the five spot in Philadelphia. And, you know, it was there that I learned you know, that uh, sort of contextualization of of gathering people and having these jam sessions. This is how I learned that that's how movements sort of go forth where, you know, it's like who, whatever you're doing for a living, um, it behooves you to have, in my opinion, four to seven groups of people in the same similar situation moving forward. Right. Right. And, um, so, you know, by that point, I'm actually, I'm serving two, uh, different camps. Cause there's like the black Lily camp on one side, but then there's the soul querying camp on the other side, which is weird because, um, we never had a title for it, and so the one thing, the one thing that I learned from everything is like the second you dub it or title it something, that's it. Right. That's it. <laughs> and if you like, if yeah. you look through history, you'll notice that, um, you know, when as a kid looking at Woodstock, I thought that nineteen sixty nine. August of 69 was like the, the flag planning ceremony for a generation of new ideas only to discover that that was the end. Right. Um, and the same for like in 78, when Saturday night fever comes, I think it's the flag planning moment. Like well, what I didn't realize was that was actually the end. Um, and If you look at MTV's arrival in 1981 and subsequently um, two years later, Michael Jackson's ascendance uh, into the stratosphere, you see that as a flag-planting moment. But really, that's the end of the music industry as we know it. Right. And post 83 was really it autopiloting and kind of just living off its own fumes, of which now um, we could say that MTV's the beginning or the, the seeds of social media, but also the end of music. And it's, you know, it's essentially just, if you look at any movement, you know, I'm certain we'll look back at 1999 as like the arrival of the Disney tribe, you know, Justin, Christina, Brittany, Backstreet Boys, you know, all the TRL set. But really, it's it's the end, you know, 2001, it'll be over. Back in 96, I mean, I just... It's hard to see it when you're in it. However, I will say, in that particular situation, I knew I was in something amazing, and it just really took all the effort in the world to not go cuckoo with cocoa buffs. Because I'll say, working with Dilla and working with D'Angelo, um, I knew, you know, I knew from day one that. Those two were just out of their mind crazy as far as their approach to musicianship and that kind of thing.
0: With Dilla, as soon as you heard him, did you realize that he would kind of define a sound and, and change things the way he did? Or did it did it kind of throw you off when you first heard it?
1: Well, here's, uh, here's the thing. So both gentlemen I dismissed on site. So I learned I learned um within within a three month period of meeting both of them for the first time. First with D'Angelo yeah. and I didn't learn my lesson. And then with Dilla. And then after Dilla, then I, I told myself I'll never, ever, ever dismiss someone on site. Like when I first meet them, because right. I could, this could have turned out really horrible. In the case with D'Angelo, um, D'Angelo had been working on Brown Sugar since 1993, and he'd been working with Bob Power. We chose Bob Power to engineer uh, the album that would become "Do You Want More," because um, you know you read the credits of the albums that you love, and you're like, "This is what I want to sound like." So for us, um and the, shout, the brothers,
0: shout out on the tribe record was always legendary with Bob Power too. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. So with with all the tribe records, yeah. with all the De La Records yep. and the Jungle Brothers and Um you know, and at this time, he's just about to start with Erica. He had just finished Michelle and Cello as he start with us. Um And he's also at the end of Brown Sugar by the time he starts with us, too. And so, um, you know, the very first thing we mixed was uh, Mellow My Man from uh, Do You Want More? And um, I think D had to come up to approve a mix for uh, I think the last thing they worked on was It's All Right for Brown Sugar. And, um, you know, Bob had been building him up and stuff and he's like, yo, man, like this guy's really, he's, he's the next Al Green. I assure you, this guy's the next Al Green. And just my relationship with R&B, um, back then, like nothing, nothing was moving me in terms of R&B with the exception with the exception of uh, Tony, 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 Sons of Soul. And that's really because, I mean, they work with the tribe on that market. Um, so it was like, sonically, um, I've yet to hear anybody in RB come with hip-hop sensibilities. And, you know, this is a year before Mary J. Blige's My Life album comes out. So, you know, the idea of mixing your peanut butter and your chocolate. Like your the idea of mixing both worlds wasn't like that type of fusion experiment. Wasn't that R&B was R&B and hip hop was hip hop. Um, yeah. And so he came in and I don't know. I just, i looked at his shoes. His Timberlands were raggedy. And I was just like, man, this guy, you know, like Bob doesn't know what the fuck you talking about.
0: <laughs> so you hadn't heard the music yet. You, you hadn't heard anything.
1: I, didn't, I didn't hear the No, I didn't okay. hear the music. Um, and D just came in, he gave me a pound. Uh, Bob handed him some DAT tapes and he left. And he says, you know, you should really play on this record. Like, Bob is really impressed with my drumming on the, you know, on the on, on the stuff that he was mixing. So it's just like, yo, you know, um, we're going to do one more song. At that point, um, he just finished It's All Right. And I'm sorry, the very last song they were going to work on was Shit Damn motherfucker." Oh, yeah, yeah. And the story is that he wanted me and Ron Carter to track at the same time. And um, I believe as it stands, Ron Carter was set to do it um, and then heard the title of the song. It was like, I'm <laughs> not playing one. A song called Shit Damn Motherfucker. Wow. Wow. And at that point, time was running out so i think they were just like nope let's just roll with the demo version so the demo version is what got stuck on the album and so i never got a chance to play on brown sugar cut to june of 1995 and i'm literally sitting at hip-hop's funeral i'm at the second annual source awards wow yep and um it's you could, I mean, literally, you could light a match and you could detonate twelve galaxies next to it. Like that's how lethal the feeling was being inside of that building. It's the Paramount Theater in um uh, at Madison Square Garden. There's three sections. There's that's I say, one I say that's hip hop's funeral because nobody was the same after that day, and um. So it was the end of the, it was the end of the innocence and it was the beginning of the, the toxicity that, in my opinion, is still prevalent to this day. And um, the seeds of the Civil War was planted at, at that particular thing because it's like all of them on the far right side, uh, you know, it was like the successful rappers, the the rich the rich uh, East Coasters, so it's like all a bad boy, and then anybody in association with them are on the far right. In the middle was every other territory. Uh, West Coast was in front. Down South with down South was in the middle. Midwest was in the back, and then on the far left were all of the sort of grimy traditionalist East Coast rappers. So it's like. Mob Deep, Nas, Buster Rhymes, Karis One, The Roots, like the traditionalist, and you could just cut the tension with a knife. And so, there was a point where I felt like there might be there, it might be problematic, and lives might be taken. Like as each as each award was being given out, and the subsequent booze of like Dr. Dre winning and Snoop winning and all that stuff. So when Dr. Dre gets producer of the year, I grab my date and I'm like, "Yo, we are out." Meet <laughs> me. And ran out. I'm running out of like I'm running for my lives because literally, if you remember, like Snoop was giving that speech like, "East Coast ain't got no love for it.
2: it's Dr. Dre's right. new dog. Of course, Let it be known yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Like I'm running. I'm running out of the theater. And as I'm running out the theater um you know the age of the age of the the street team was was getting sort of developed around this time period so you know diddy used to have people like with protest signs and all like street teams outside of clubs holding up signs for bad boys giving out cassettes giving out CDs of like whatever's coming out yep and I'm running outside and I mean, the place is mercilessly booing Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And I'm like, all right, someone's going to start shooting. I'm running. And this guy runs up to me. He's like, yo, I got one more left. And he puts his thing in my hand and I run. And as soon as I get to 34th and like safety, I'm like on 34th and 8th, headed back to my hotel. I'm looking in my pocket at what he gave me. And it was D'Angelo, brown sugar. And I didn't put two and two together that this was Bob Power's guy. It was a CD. I get to my hotel and we're just chilling. And I happen to have one of those like clock radio things that has a CD player with it. Looking on the nightstand, I just happen to see Ali Shaheed Muhammad's name. And I was like, Ali Shaheed Muhammad? And I put it in and I realized, I looked and I said, Bob Power. Oh no, this is that guy and i was like my heart sunk i was like shit i could have been a part of history because i'd never heard by that point i was like wait you could sing over music that sounds like a trap called quest and dude like that moment even though i you know there was there was pain in my heart from what I just experienced at the source awards and me feeling like that was hip hop's funeral. But that day, like this thing came to be like this new thing was birthed inside of me and listening to his music. I couldn't tell if he didn't know how to drum program, whatever. Cause like the drums were sloppy as shit. And I was just like, Oh damn, I got to get, I got to get in this guy's good graces. like, I got to be down with this guy. That's all I kept saying. Like, I got to figure out how to be down with this dude. Like, we're speaking the same language. So cut to so cut to about four months later, we're now on tour with The Far Side. We did, a show, we did a show without The Far Side maybe a week before at Irving Plaza. And The Far Side came to visit because they were putting finishing touches on like a remix or whatnot. And um, I had been hearing rumors that Q-Tip was going to produce some songs on their record. And so I was excited. And I got backstage, and I was like, yo, 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 what's up? So I heard, uh, like, Tip's going to produce some joints too? And they're like, nah, 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 nah. But, you know, his his, his boy, his boy's going to hook it up. And they pointed to his boy. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. I thought like, so, wait, Q Tips not producing it. I said, nah, man. You know we got Diamond D and we got a uh, JD. And you know JD was just like he is a quiet storm. He's very unassuming. He's you know omnipresent and invisible at the same time. And I just dismissed him. Like he was like real shy and you know just like yo yup, yo yup, what's up whatever up, you know that sort of thing. And um, I just dismissed it. So, cut to three nights later, night one of this Far Side Roots run. And we're in North Carolina at the Cat's Cradle Club. And um, I, we just finished our set. We're opening for the Far Side. And I'm about to get in a car to go do some college radio promo, I think at Duke. And so, Far Side was just about to come on stage. And having seen them once before, I know that they have awesome stage entrances. So I said, whoa, 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 Guys, hang on one second. I just want to see how they come out on stage, see what happens. So I run backstage real quick. And sure enough, they do some crazy thing, like some crazy dance, like to I think uh, to some uh, Ronnie Law sample that Black Moon used for Who Got the Props, Tidal yep. Wave. yep, yep. So I was like all right that's dope. All right dudes let's do it. And so we're backstage, I get in the car and uh get in the, go, you know walk outside backstage. There's a parking lot and the car has to go through an alleyway to get to the front of the club. And you can the, the walls are thin so I can hear the bass as we're driving slow I can hear the ba- the, the bass residue of the of the kick drum. Um through the nightclub because the door is halfway open, and I heard the pattern and I was like, weird. I said whoa, 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 stop the car one second. He stopped the car and I'm listening and I'm listening And it's like I said, that's the weirdest kick drum pattern I've ever heard in my life. I said, wait a minute. I said, pull over one second. So I made him pull over and I run to the front of the club. And the bouncer's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, where? And I point to myself. I said, I, I literally just opened. I'm, I'm in the group, uh, the Roots. That's me. I said, just for one, and I showed my past. I said, can, can I, I just want to hear this song for three seconds. And he like, like it was like weird. Like, wait, wait, why would the artist be? But he let me in. And the opening song is uh, the first cut on Lab Cap in California, called Bullshit which the programming of the kick drum is just out of its goddamn mind. <laughs> and I'm sitting there frozen, like, this sounds like a, there's mistakes in the, the kick drum. What the fuck? So I get to, so I leave, and it's hidden. It's, it's like confusing to me, because on and Eyes of Mine of, of D'Angelo's, the kick drum is off. Right. And then <clears throat> the far side song, the kick drum is off. And and it's not off in like in the way that the RZA's programming is off. Like the RZA's just sound like, hey, that's just hip hop, yo. Like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah. Like he didn't read the manual. Whereas this shit sound like it was off on purpose. Like I purposely made it sound like that. And so the next day, Uh, we went from North Carolina to Virginia and Skills happened to be there. And he's all excited. And he's like, yeah, I'm I'm working with the producer they work with. And I said, yo, you're working with that guy too? And he's like, he's playing it. I said, yeah, like that first song they did, is crazy. Like the the drum program, it's off. And he's like, yeah, man, JD's beats are ill, man. And he puts a cassette on. And I'm listening to... What Dilla beat collectors will be known as um, Volume Two, 1994, of which I'm hearing "Stakes Is High." I'm hearing, uh, I'm actually hearing "Dynamite" and not knowing it that I'll use that three records from now.
0: Yep, yeah,
1: it's like all these beats, but I just the shit was mad off, and I was just like, the reason why it spoke to me was because. Uh, during this period we're going to get pushback for quote not being hip hop enough so you know this is a relatively a new label it's not a new label but they're new to hip hop and so we're going to get to the end of this campaign about a year later and have meetings and it's like well mix mix tape mix show tape DJs might not, aren't playing you guys because you don't sound hip hop enough. And now it's like, oh, blame Amir time, blame Amir the drummer time. And so I'd spent the next year, uh, 96 and 97, just like becoming a machine. I wanted to be the most meticulous, like, you don't know if it's real or not. So I'd spent most of that time just learning how to be an engineer. How to gate sounds, how to compress sounds, how to time compress stuff, how to sound like I'm time compressing. Like all those things where you're like, that has to be that has to be a drum machine.
0: And did you guys already have the studio at this point? The Larry Gold spot?
1: We I mean we basically had a sweet deal at Sigma Sound. Right. So I'll say that the the main the, the real main reason why I spent so much time there. It was also that, you know, my parents were going through divorce. And I just, you know, from a person that grew up in a professional uh, showbiz family to watch that shit implode, um, I just didn't want to go home. So I just stayed at the studio 24 7. I slept on the couch in the reception. And the engineer, Dave Ivory, really took a liking to me. So, you know, I would ask him, like, wait, how come, like, today's music doesn't sound like, and I'd play him, like, Marvin Gaye, like, anything coming from the 70s. And he to me, like, well, this is a, you know, a tube microphone, and if you put compression on this, and da So he's teaching me things like, you know, all this stuff was mixed on one microphone. You put it back here. Not to mention, you know, Sigma is the home of the sound of Philadelphia. Yep. So... Joe Tarsia would occasionally come inside the studio and um, matter, you know, I'm, I'm skipping ahead three years when I was doing dynamite, I almost got voted off of dynamite. Like my thing was like, yo, I insist on playing on this. And they were just like, nah, leave Dillers beat alone. Like, just let it be that. And I think in my mind, I had this thing where it's like, well, you know, we got rules and we have to be a live band or else we're like a fraud to our, our fan base. And I was like, I was not going to give up on drumming on dynamite. And um, Joe Tarsi had just happened to be uh, fixing the ventilator and heard what I was saying. And he's like, well, what, what are you looking for? And I was like, I need to make my drum sound dry like this. So he hears what I'm going for. And he says, oh, I don't know what you need. And he runs upstairs to Studio One. And he hands me this blue blanket. It's a it's a it's like a baby blanket. And he says, "This blanket belongs to Earl Young." Now, Earl Young is in in the shortest way I could say it. Earl Young invents the sound that you know is disco. The idea of the the hi hat uh, opening on the every end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sound of boots and cats. Yep. Earl Young invented that sound. He he was one of the founding members of the Tramps. So on the love I lost, on you know, and he played on all those Philly International records. Um, Earl Young would put blankets on all of his drums to get that dry ass sound. And so he says, "All right." He says, "Tune your drum down, some." And I tuned it up. He says, "All right, now loosen your snare," and I loosened my snare. And then he went to to, to Dave Ivory and was like, "All right, so um, put this much gait on, uh, put this much compression and some gait on tracking it." And he says, "I want you to hit it as soft as you can, like." And you know, I started playing. He says, "No, you're playing the drums. I need you to not play drums." And literally, I want you to. He, he said, "I want you to put your wrists on your legs." When you put your wrists on your thighs and only use your index and your thumb to hit the the the, the uh snare. And I was like, huh? Like he might as well have told me to play with chopsticks. That's how light I was hitting. And he says, just hit as light as you can. He says, What you don't know is he's like, I'm I'm distorting the game and putting a lot of compression on it. Like I can hear your heartbeat right now. Yeah, yeah. So hit it as soft as fuck. Hit it as soft as possible. And I did it like, what does this old guy know? And next thing I know, he's like, "All right, now you do this. He said, voila. He says, now, can you tell the difference? And he plays a version of me. He says, is that you or is that the drum program? <laughs> I said, it's the drum program. He said, no, that's you. For he a said, agent. try again. I said, yeah. wait, what? And then he did it. He kept a, B in it. And I was like, how did you do that? And he's like, dude, you can literally mold any sound you want to. You just got to know the right combination to do it. So that was such a game changing moment for me. Um, but yeah, taking it back, I'll, I'll say that I'd spent all of 1996 sort of defiantly angry, like I'm gonna make I'm gonna make hip hoppers respect that I'm the greatest drum machine ever. But I meet D'Angelo and Dilla who basically just strip me of all my musical vulnerability and make me play like a drunk amateur. And that's the thing. Like it's, it's, I'm 25 years old and you know, I'm a 25 year older that got replaced by a little John Roberts in all orchestra high school, all city jazz band, like three years in a row. Like, like, imagine, like, you think this is your chance to finally get first chair. And this little ninth grade runt freshman <laughs> is like, just, it's like, Thompson, play the tambourine. Roberts, get on drums. And he's, like, killing it. And so it's, like, the age of the, of the, of the gospel lick drummer and all this stuff, like, this whole you got to prove that, you know, you're the shit, like, it's entirely... A generation of drummers being raised off of uh, commissioned the, the gospel group, right? Yep, yep. And now I got to make a decision like, what side am I going to serve on? Because D'Angelo is telling me now that we're starting these sessions for what will become known as Voodoo. First song we worked on was a song called Bitch, which is like uh it just defies the law of gravity as far as time is concerned and we just rehearsed it like i i'd say we played it at least an hour and 15 minutes just straight jamming trying to figure out him being off beat me being me being off beat his left hand being more off beat than i am and his right hand being on beat
0: was he playing you demos of these songs at this point, so I know with in, with Brown Sugar, he had like he has like the infamous demos from the ASR ten and whatnot. But right. for for Voodoo, um, did, it was, did he come to you with like demos, or was he singing you the no, patterns? He, he,
1: he didn't have demos. It was like the you know with with Voodoo. Voodoo starts at the end of Philadelphia Half Life. He comes to Philly. He comes to Philly to work on the hypnotic with me, which is like the second to last song that we recorded. And because we did it in record time, like we set aside two days of, we set aside two days to do it. And instead got finished in six hours. And it was just like, well, you're here. I'm here. Let's fuck around. See what's up. And so we just had a jam session, which we really just like, testing each other's knowledge. Like he started playing a Prince song and I was right there and, and he was like, Oh, you know this shit. And then he started playing, uh, Roy Ayers and, it's like, Oh, you know this shit. So it was sort of like we, this is when we discovered like, Oh, we speak the same language. So, um, the very first voodoo related thing, he starts, he plays this song, and um, I'm playing it, and he's like, "All right, all right, this one, do it again, but this time, like, drag your foot." And I, was, you know, it took me like 20 minutes to really figure out. Oh, you want me to play fucked up? He's nah, I don't want you to play fucked up. Just drag your foot, like Dream and Eyes of Mine. Like, and then he knew I was a fan of the drum programming on Dream, dream and Eyes of Mine. He said, "Act, act like this is Dream and Eyes of Mine." And I was like, "Oh, okay," and I started imitating junior. He said, "Yeah, now you got it." So he's like, "Now stop playing the the ride cymbal and just go to hi hat." Now do your own pattern, but still, like, you know, occasionally just just slide me a little sauce, like just a little pepper, like you know that sort of thing. And I started, you know, just doing little inflections of the kick drum, and and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, that's and and now we're playing." Uh, the song called Bitch, which, I mean, never came out, was like one of my favorite songs from five years of working on that record. And, um, you know, we we did a good, we did a good, like, two days of just feeling each other out. Um, the next night, which is weird enough, the next night was also my first day of Baduism. So... You know, he leaves and then Erica comes in and it's so weird because playing with him for those two days actually messed up my, my, uh, my, my system and, you know, playing that draggy way with the roots wasn't working with Erica. So I had to like reprogram my thinking and go back to default Amir of just playing like regular breakbeat style, right, but right. like as a drum machine. So then he calls me up to start work at uh first we started at Battery Studios for like maybe 2 days and it wasn't a vibe. So then we go to Electric Lady in um in May of 1996 and we will be there for the next like 4 years. Yeah. And I, you know, I think the first song that made the album that we worked on was Send It On.
0: I had that, I had like a weird bootleg tape that had that on there.
1: Um, I mean, Send It On made it to the record, but we would just, we would literally, like in his mind, he wanted to start on what our live show was going to be first, before we even had an album to present. We'd, We'd go through Prince's whole catalog. And until something is stuck. So it's like, we'll sit in. All right, what album you want to do today? All right. uh, Let's do Parade. So we do Christopher Chase's Parade. Then we do New Position. And then we get to I Wonder You. And right before we get to the end of it, to do Under the Cherry Moon, it's like, keep on playing the drum beat. And I'm playing the beat. And I'm playing for like, Two minutes just by myself, and I'm about to stop. He says, No, 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 don't stop. Keep on keep on keep on going. And he's playing, and he's playing. And you hear him like fidgeting around on the keyboard. And then I hear this noise. And what I don't know is that he's taking the shell off the fender roads. So you just hear the naked bells. And he starts playing his thing. And is this and it's basically he starts planting the seeds of what will become Africa and um, that's how that's basically the process of the next year and we would you know we do some shit where it's like I'm um, by Chris McBride McDon- down the jam one time um, he was watching uh, BT whatever show that uh, Ramsey Lewis used to host Charlie Hunter's on TV, and D's, like, mind blown. And he's like, yo, we got to get him. Okay, so I played a pattern. I played a pattern from, like, the week before that they came and looped. They looped it, and they started working on the Root together. But then when I got back from, like, a Roots gig on Sunday night, um, we... I believe the three of us live just jammed out Spanish joint and like straight. Just, just, which is weird because it was like there was no format or nothing. We just, the song wasn't written, but we knew like how the music should go. So it's even like when the modulation happens in the end and the thing stops and we, like retired to his show and then we come back into it and that sort of thing. Like there, there was no map. We just, we just knew that's how the song goes. I'll say the first quarter was a little weird because it's, it just sounded so raw and so dirty and so like nothing like roots records aren't that raw. You know right. what I'm saying?
0: Was Russ Alavado around for? He was there from the beginning of these sessions. Was
1: he-, he was there from the bit. It's so weird because it just hit me. Um, I thought I was the only person that knew how to truly engineer my sound. So not knowing the monster that Russ is, like I was just like, all right, scoot over, man. Let me let me start doing my joint. So for like the first week, I was taking over the board, like trying to mix my songs and try to make magic out of it, and then. Um, he had to talk with me. and Says, "Yo, man, like, you know, um, like, let 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 Russ do his job, man. Like, let him let him do his thing. Like, that that's his area of expertise. And you know, it's just that I was just so jealously guarded of how I was presented that I didn't trust that anyone knew how to really present me. But." I slowly learned that Russ was that motherfucker. Like Russ, like Russ taught me that shit. You know, like I didn't know. When we did we initially did Great Day in the Morning Booty. Um that was initially an idea for the Space Jam soundtrack. And the song didn't make it, and D wound up just doing I Found My Small Again from Like one one from like the Brown Sugar demo, Um, so we put that song to bed, and then out of nowhere, the song came back in a new form. Like he kept the drums and created a whole new song on top of it, and like when we get to the second half of that song, like Russ puts my drums inside of a guitar amp, which. It's like I didn't know we could do that. Like it just sounds so dirty. Like right? it was just like, dude. I, just with everything on that album, it was just like a whole. Every day was a new winding road. And so, cut to, cut to four years later. The last thing we worked on. The last thing we worked on was a song called "The City" that didn't make it. Um and they went to master it the next day and um gave me a copy of it and I'm excited, man. And I go to the I go to I'm on a date and I was like, let's go to Shark Bar. And we go to Shark Bar and uh sitting there and you know, I don't I don't know if you ever frequented the Shark Bar, but that was like the sexy Yep. Upscale, it was like the sexy upscale black spot that has like upper echelon soul food. So I'm there, and I'm like, I go to the bar, and I have the CD in my hand, and I'm like, "Yo, I got that new D'Angelo record, man." And you know, this like they're already playing like Maxwell in the background, and all. You know what I mean? So it's yep, like yep. that environment. Yep, yep. The they gave me that shit back in like 12 minutes. <laughs> and I my heart just sank. I was like, oh, shit. I killed this career. Like, I did this. <laughs> like, because just sonically, it sounded like nothing.
0: It threw people off. I remember that. I remember putting it in initially. And I'm a massive fan of Brown Sugar. And it threw me off. But by listen three, I was completely blown away, you know? That was like... yeah. I,
1: it's so weird because the thing was in his initial and it's funny how like periodicals and whatnot will have a redo and act like they didn't pan something the first time around. Right, right. Bro, uh, Voodoo in its initial Rolling Stone review, it got the lead review and got a paltry three and James Hunter just tore the shit out of the frame of which now they've since then like re-reviewed that album and just cleared it one of, you know, the, the best album in the last 20 years, you know, whatever. Right, right. But it was just like someone someone described it someone I think it was Greg Tate, I'm not certain, but it was someone of age that told me that The uncomfortableness they felt listening to this record was similar to that of hearing there's a riot going on for the first time. A very hard pill to swallow. And it's almost like he, it was like, it was like they were describing that this album gives them the opportunity to recognize something great. The, First time around, and not have it be a thing in hindsight where it's like, "Oh yeah, now I get it." And you know, it was just a very weird time period because, like, I play it for some people, and be like, "Oh man!" Like, if you know, not even knowing that I was involved in it, I just want to hear people's like honest opinions, and they're like, "He fell off, man!" Like, no one got that shit. No one got it. And it took so long. For, you know, so it was just scary, man. It was scary. And it was just scary for me because it's like, again, like I, I committed to this role. Like in a in way that De Niro will like gain 60 pounds for like playing Rocky Marciano. Yeah. Like that's what I did. And I like I didn't take the weight off. I was like, I'm going to be the sloppiest like amateur-sounding drummer ever. I'm going to own that shit and make it cool. And, you know, sometimes I, I just be weirded out. It's just like, oh, man, I want people to know, like, I committed my whole life to being like a badass drummer, but now I'm doing this shit on purpose, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Dilla during the process of this, like, were D'Angelo and, and Jay were they communicating back in those days, or did you feel like that they independently had this this sound, and then like, was it random? Or
1: Dilla's music? What? No, he was he was always that. Like, yeah, this this is what I'm saying.
0: But even before that, was D'Angelo aware of Dilla before you were? <laughs> you know, like
1: yes. way back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So back before Facetime. Back before Skype, you know, long distance was a real thing. Yeah. (laughs) A very real thing. And more important, European international phone call long distance was a real thing. You know, the wrong phone sex moment could cost you $175 if, you know, if you aren't careful right. in, in, in a hotel. So like if you're living off of like $135 per diem a day, if you're lucky, three nights talking to your boo on a telephone, that could be trouble. Check it out the next day. And I get home, I'm in Germany and I get home uh, from the gig and I'm checking my messages on my pager and Q-Tip and D'Angelo's like yo, check this out and they're playing me the third interlude from Fantastic Volume 1 uh, which is the you know Age of Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In hooked on synth uh, album that tip rhymed over for the Beastie Boys' Get It Together. And I called back, like, what? What What's that shit? And (laughs) D was like, yo, you got to hear this shit. It's life-changing. So he puts on the first song. You know, and and these are micro songs. Like, the songs, songs are fantastic. Like, anywhere between 45 seconds to maybe two minutes. Like, not that long at all. And he plays it, and he's like, yo, yo, you got to hear the second shit. And he plays I Don't Know. And I'm like, yo, dude, just play the whole shit for me. And he held the phone up to the speaker, play the whole shit for me. Cut to the next day, my manager's livid as fuck. He's like, yo, dude, your phone bill was $209. <laughs> wow. You're not eating tonight, like I did. That's the second time in my life I didn't eat for the sake of food. The first time was when I spent my entire monthly lunch card buying the 1999. What time is it? In Vanity Six Records from the record store instead of getting a monthly lunch card, I'm like, I'm willing to start for the month of November, <laughs> so I can buy these four records and the, the Times First record. Um, yeah, so I had to starve the next day, man. And it was fucking, I mean, I lived off like potato chips backstage, but it starts there. And, you know, Dilla is just feeding us beat tape after beat tape after beat tape after beat tape. And we're analyzing the shit and we're replaying the shit. Like somewhere in those, those somewhere in those uh reels are... Our versions of like every Dilla joint ever created, and um, where he almost wound up on the record was for the song that should have been Lauryn Hill song. There was um, there's a Lauryn Hill joint that never happened. It's decided to do. Uh, That's the Time and Phil make a lump to you. Oh well, no, even then. That was supposed to be with Lauren and D'Angelo. Oh, okay. And it didn't happen, so he just took it by himself. But um, for like half a second, half a second, uh, the song that's Tell Me on Fantastic Volume 2 might have almost wound up on Voodoo. All I remember was that I was like, yo, hook up, let's hook up hook up flying high. Like, how would you flip Marvin Gaye's flying high in the friendly sky? And so he hooked it up. I drummed on it. Um, and then Dilla basically just took the reel back to Detroit and resampled me and resampled uh, D and flipped it. Like, right, flipped right. it even better than the, I wish I could find the original version that we played on, though. You know what I mean? I'd like to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's somewhere. Like, in my cassette collection, I, I have everything. But, um, no, I mean, he was always there. So, you know, I still consider Dilla the, you know, the top of the pyramid for all those albums that came out from that period. Because even if he wasn't physically on the record, like, he still... He's still a part of the creative process, and you know. And when it really got greasy, by the time by the time time Common jumps aboard, so now Common is in Studio B, D'Angelo's in Studio A, and Erica's in Studio C.
0: This is all Electric Lady, yeah,
1: yeah. At its craziest, um, Dilla's idea of a good time is just going in the studio. And working on his left hand, like working on his bass hand. Yeah, yeah. And he, I swear to God, the entire dinner break, we were taking a dinner break. And Dilla was just inside of uh, Studio A on D'Angelo's Road setup, um, playing his bass line in A minor. Yeah, (laughs) yeah and playing it for, like, 45 minutes. 45 <laughs> minutes. Like, we're eating dinner, we're watching TV, and let me let me not... Yo, though, we watched TV way more than we worked on that record. Like, if it wasn't for the break room, you probably could have had Voodoo by, like, 1998. Yeah. But most of that time, D had a strange obsession with the JFK movie He's, he's like a massive conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. So JFK was his movie. Um, I'm just discovering what happens when you play Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon on the third line war of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So we're doing that all the time. Yo, yo, show them the movie real quick. And then, you know, like we've watched watch that shit at least five to ten times. Um... Not to mention, I have another job, which is being YouTube before YouTube was YouTube. Because the roots are still happening. So now I'm leveraging my notoriety in the world. Um, doing press and these old, you know, and going to Japan and this person says, hey, this guy has like uh, 20 Soul Train episodes. I'll take him." You know, this guy has every... So now I'm talking to like every... Earth, Wind and Fire concert collector and every slot like so shit that we take for granted now on YouTube. So now instead of a backpack, I'm walking around with a big ass Kipling bag with about sixty yep. videotapes in it.
0: I remember I ran into you. This is probably around when I met you. I think in in one of the either at Electric Lady or in Philly. And you showed me some of those videos, and then I was going to Japan, and I forget the name of the spot, but there was a spot like yep. near Shinjuku, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we used to always play the Blue Note, which I think maybe was, right. and my hotel was around the corner, and I used to go to that place. And then by the second time I came, they had a soul live video in there, bootleg, yep. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I, and once, they, once and then I started getting, <laughs> and then they started giving me the videos for like you know like 10% of the, uh, what they were trying to sell them and <laughs> I would come back with literal suitcases full uh, exactly
1: of, of so I spot. became that person yeah. and then like it really got out of hand because then it'd be like you know maybe his manager Dominique Trenier would give me the number but, of like some AR person it's like yo uh, you know Mary J. Blige wants to see this Al Green performance that you showed D'Angelo does. so now like I gotta so but that's the thing like it became that like we'd yeah. watch episodes and study them and then go redo them after we watched them for like two hours. So Dill's playing that line for like 45 minutes. And then I remember James went in to join him and he's now playing the part on the Leslie while Dilla is just playing that baseline over again. And now it's like an hour, 15 minutes later. And I press the intercom button. They don't. Have, they don't have headphones on though. They're playing like live through the. Yeah. So I yeah. Stuck my head in and I'm like, "Yo, what, what's this?" He's like, "Nah, just you know, fucking." Real. I said, "Is this a? Is this a song?" And then Commons like, yo, I like. I like that. Let's do something to this." And so we mess around for about like another half hour. So now it's about almost two hours of the same song. Play Like Dill yet to get up. He <laughs> played that bass line for two hours straight. Yeah. And we finished it. And then I was like, wait a minute. Shit. I said, we don't, we don't have a song with all of us playing together. And it was just one of them days where, because normally the protocol was that common works from like 10 in the morning to like maybe six in the afternoon. And then D comes in around seven and is done around eight in the morning sometimes. And then over and over and over. And it depends on the overlap and I'll just sleep in the studio. So D just happened to be, what was he there for? It, it was something that he, I remember him. Whatever it was, he was looking at photos of his trip to Haiti because he took photo no no no. He was, I think he took those photos in Cuba. Either Haiti or Cuba, whatever the photos are.
0: The ones that are in the in voodoo, right? On the inside.
1: Yeah, those. So yeah. he's he's back from some photo shoot and they set up he set up his um his Insonic. By the way, he still has that to this day,
0: And that's what he used. When y'all did the duo shows, I saw he, and he had, and he had all the flop little discs and whatnot. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. yo,
1: they still make floppy discs? <laughs>
0: yeah. I was wondering where he got those.
1: Dude. And so yeah. literally he, um, like he's the patch master. Like he, the way that he'll take, uh, He'll take a studio uh, factory um, parts and EQ them in a certain way so that it's his sound. Yep. I've never seen a human do that ever. So he starts playing this this uh, block, like this uh, kind of this this woodblock patch thing, and that's how time traveling is born. I think there's another, there's another song that we did. Oh, 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 Jimmy, uh, Jimmy was a rock star. We're sort of like <laughs> the same thing. And, um, it's yeah. So pretty much like common, we either be studio, be working on his vocals. Um, if we had to tracks to music and we knew D'Angelo wasn't coming until seven, We could use D'Angelo's room with the setup, which is why they which is why like those albums are like twins to each other. Simply because like recorded at the same time with the same engineers, with the same feel, you know, that sort of thing.
0: And with the with the common record, who walked in with the Fela records? (laughs) Who brought the Tony Allen vibes?
1: That was me. I discovered I discovered Fela via Philadelphia resident. Santi Gold. Santi put me down with Bad Brains, Nina Simone, and Fela Kuti. Santi's father, uh, who used to be like a, a Philadelphia, um, uh, he wasn't on city council, but he was sort of like something in the city of Philadelphia. He was a big, big, big Fela fan. And so whenever Santi would pick you up, in her truck in her SUV, she'd always have fail playing. And then it rubbed off on Tariq first. Tariq started collecting and this is before the reissue stuff. So you'd have to go to the African spot in yeah. West Philly. Yeah. To get these CDs or these
0: reissues. Yeah, that record was a was a portal for a lot of people into that, into that fail-out oh, shit! Yeah, I mean? no, no, no,
1: no doubt. They so can. the thing was, is that I told my A&R at the time and I was like, yo, like, can we, can, can we, the first thing I suggested was we do Red Hot and Riot. And through Red Hot and Riot, then MCA was just like, well, let's also reissue the Failout Records too. So yeah, that was completely, that was my idea 100%. One, I just wanted to make sure that the entire catalog was covered so that that way I could hear all the music and not to scour the earth paying like 75 bucks for, you know, all of every record that he put out. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty much like Santi put me, Sante put me and Tariqo on the fila. Tariq was luckier because he was driving at the time. He was luckier to find the the material at like obscure African bookstores and shit like that. And then Tariq played them on the tour bus, and then that's how I get to them. And then so on and so forth.
0: And then Commons record, what? How that came out after Voodoo, right? A month after Voodoo. So
1: Voodoo, Voodoo was officially finished. Last note, last master, um, slightly before Thanksgiving, only because I know that um, we knocked off Bilal sometime the Monday before Thanksgiving in November. So maybe November 1999. At this point, Common's realizing that he has to expand his portfolio and acting has to start playing a part of the bigger picture of his career, not just being a rapper. And so he comes in the work super early and it's super excited. Like, yo, I got, I got an audition and reading and his whole motivation is yo, man, like old old girl quote, old girl from destiny's child going to be in this uh, movie too, man. So she, you know, she might be my girl in this, in this, in this movie. <laughs> so like, he has all the energy of like of think of think of, like Eddie Murphy and uh, uh, Eddie Murphy and um, the Nutty Professor. Like, I got a date. Yeah, date,
0: yeah. Date.
1: Like after shave on his yeah. like for after shave on his father. Like yeah. wearing his good ascot tie. Like like that sort of, like that was our whole point. Our whole point was like, yo. Like, one by one, we're pulling people into the family. Yo, wouldn't it be dope if old, quote, and that's the thing, like, he says Chicago, we never once said Beyonce's name. Yeah. It was just like, yo, old like, girl. old girl, old girl <laughs> gonna be down with us, man. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, yo, that's gonna be crazy. Like, our family's gonna be big as shit. Like, no, nah, she gonna be down, she gonna be down. And then just like a sitcom, you know, when the scene changes and the exact opposite happens? Yeah, yeah. Like, literally, <laughs> the scene changes and he walks in all defeated. Yeah. And we're like, yo, what's up, man? So what happened? What happened? Yeah, man. Oh, man. I didn't get the role, man. They gave the role the most. And yeah. it was like almost a common thing. Like, most was still in every role. Like, Tip... Yeah. it was after like a few roles and then most got them instead. Like clearly, most was going to be like the superstar actor of this whole, of this whole crew, and he came in all defeated. And man, yo, we clowned the shit like that whole time. We clowned them, but what's <laughs> so funny is what's so funny is that when we got on our instruments. James kept playing Bills 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 by Dusty Shout. And someone else, oh, drum wise, I was playing Umi says, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And Pino Palladino not knowing like these songs from a can of paint. I'm telling him what to play bass-wise. But He's not, he, you know, either I didn't notate him the notes correct enough, but it was cool enough for the joke to just last for like another 10 minutes. So what Pino Palladino s- starts off trying to play Umi says, but winds up playing exactly what you hear at the beginning of blouse sometimes. Right,
0: right. That makes sense.
1: So that whole like 45 second intro where we're trying to fill each other out, boop, boo, 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 boo like and and then we start you like i wish there was a tracking of my vocal or not my vocal mic my communication mic i was like all right, all right we'll do me says for like cuz the thing is is like Bilal sometimes is such a favorite song to like his fan base yeah but you know they only knew that that was just nothing but like us joking in the wrong key. Yeah. You know? So then like, you hear me. All right. All right. All right. Now, now, now do, do, do a uh, bills, bills, bills right here. Bah,
2: bah, 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 bah. And right. then go back
1: to the record thing. And oh, then go shit, back. That's to bills. Crazy. So literally after fucking around for like 15, 20 minutes, then it's like, yo, is this a real song or are we just fucking around? And but I was like, uh uh-uh. uh, I like this shit. Keep this shit. This is a real song. And it was like, nah, man, let's let's work on some real shit. Like, we just, just fucking around. But he was like he insisted. He's like, No, this is a real song. We got it. And so I've never just turned in a song that was un like an unplanned joke. But he took it and turned that shit into a real song. But yeah. I assure you that's funny, man.
0: And that's that's one of the song. That's like one of the most memorable songs from that record,
1: dude. It's like when you don't when you don't plan it, and you're just in a natural element. Like that's when the magic happens, you know. Same for Chicken Grease. Chicken Grease was a common song, right? Right. And you know, uh, we're playing around. D'Angelo comes in. It's like, yo, what what the fuck is this? And he gets on keyboards. It's, it's just like, you know, the edit, the, our editing skills are awesome because it's like, I swear you can, I hear these conversations. Like what you guys don't hear, like on Player Player, I can clearly hear us laughing at each other and, and cracking jokes over the music um, on Erica's AD 2000 I hear where I'm snoring and my drumstick falls to the floor. But it's like, fuck it. I don't care. Like, I'm sick. I want to get out of here. It's 2 in the morning. She dragged me out of bed to play this shit. Um, and all the jokes that were, like, there's so many human moment jokes. It's like a lot of that and not enough of, okay, we're about to record. Okay, one, two, three. Like all that stuff is just natural jamming that somehow with just a little bit of editing tricks, you know, and Russell's uh, magic of, of editing, it turns out brilliant. Well,
0: that's the beauty of that sound is you can hear that. You can hear how comfortable you guys are. And especially coming out of an era where things were so overproduced and you know diddy and all these people that were ruling the radio and then you guys came along and it was like a a breath of fresh air for so many people you know i think that was the magic you know
1: you know it took i think when when the tour came then i think we really pushed the needle and and then people were like oh i get it now like there there's there's no story or magic that I can describe um, that will ever, ever um, do justice to what it was like to do that tour.
0: I saw the Radio City show um, and I I was good, good friends with Jacques uh, who was, he was playing, like when he wasn't with you guys, he was playing on Soul Lab's first record. Yeah, Yeah, High top. Uh, yeah. He, he played, at that time actually, he played on Soul Lab's record and then I was playing on Anthony Hamilton's record, like during that same time when his first album. But I came out to that show, oh, okay. it ended up being canceled and then rescheduled. And I don't know if you remember this show or if every night was like this, but at Radio City, it ended up being on a Monday night because it was originally on like a Friday and it got rescheduled. But that show, probably to this day, one of the best shows I've ever seen.
1: No, I I remember it. Was this when Method Rent? Yes. Left and right. right?
0: Yep, they came out, and I think Busta was there that night, and someone else. Who?
1: Yeah, I remember this night. I think
0: most might have opened, or like I most
1: most definitely opened. Yeah. Um, I mean, the like the everything about that night, everything about that tour was magic, man. Yeah. I mean, starters. You know, between all the jazz arguments between like Russell Gunn. (laughs) <laughs> and Hargrove yeah like between Frank Lacey and like it'd be like it was like our version of Do The Right Thing with Frank Lacey uh Roy Hargrove and Russell Gunn as the three dudes on the corner of Do The Right Thing
0: yeah <laughs> fuck with yeah, yeah. You
1: no, know, <laughs> like Frank Lacey arguing about like the same shit I went through with high school like yeah. Frank Legacy was Kurt Rosenwinkle like arguing about like traditionalism and how, you know, like uh Wynton ruined jazz and put a suit on and killed the whole in bass movement. Right. Like all the shit that David Murray was trying to push push with the envelope and the in base collective with like Cassandra and Steve Coleman and Greg Osby and all this like basically ruining the like went and ruined uh, jazz momentum and then you know uh roy counter arguing the opposite and like it was a lot of that jazz bickering like all my jazz education almost damn near came from that one tour Probably said the best show of all was in Minnesota, where, like, you know, uh, I never told the story in public. Like, Prince invited us to Paisley Park the night before, I think to just like get in our heads.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, to really get to plant the seeds of doubt, to get in our heads. Wow. And um, that's because, like, John Bream. Prince's arch nemesis and champion have basically like declared like D'Angelo the new king in town, Prince Old Hat, and that sort of thing. And, you know, to go do that show in front of members of the revolution, in front of Brown Mark, in front of Bobby Z, in front of like Fink, right? um, In front of Eric Leeds, um, to have like, all, like Larry Graham to have the entire MVG, like in the on that sort of thing. That's crazy. Yeah. And us killing that shit. Like, and you saw in early, you know, you saw the 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 the, the incarnation of it like in April. Yeah. But man by like July, this show was unstoppable. Right. And just to have your idols like really that have your back on this shit, man. You know what I mean? Oh my God. It was scary. It was great. It was really great. Um, yeah, but just to, just to see it through, man. And you know, unfortunately like to see it come to a grinding halt and know for the next 15 years, this shit wouldn't happen again.
0: Could you, could you feel that happening? during it or did it seem during the tour that this was going to sustain and
1: i mean at the time i had no reason to think it wouldn't because you know as far as i knew like that was always the mission the mission was like let's all form like voltron and let's 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 be a superpower
0: and by this time voodoo's out water for chocolates out and and so i by this time voodoo's out water for chocolate's out and so our and so Soul aquarians are now a, a a you got who came up with the name actually who actually realized
1: the the original soul aquarians were like dilla me Poiser, and D'Angelo. here's the weird thing so vibe magazine is doing a profile on me and um it's June power issue. And at the time, you know, I, had, I really had a problem with like accepting glory or I was a very reluctant person in accepting like glory or that sort of praise thing. And I just felt like it would just alienate. You know, by that point in my career, things were happening for me at a rapid pace that weren't happening for the rest of the roots. Right. And I still had the roots to think about. You know, like, we just got our success with Things Fall Apart and all that stuff. And, and, you know, I kind of took a lost weekend. I said, look, you know, I want to take the year off to do this D'Angelo shit. Tariq's going to shoot his movie. We'll come back in 2001. You know, let's have fun with it. But, you know, I want to take the year off to do this. And, um, you know, it was met with some grumps or whatever, but it's like, I had to do what I had to do. And, um, however, when it came time to that feature, I was like, yo, I said, can we do something different where like we do it as a collective and I told him the story of like what it was like at electric lady thing was we never had a title, you know what I mean? And I asked everyone, like, well, what do we call this photo? What do we call this title? Like, what are we? What are we? What are we? And it was sort of like, well, are we soul Aquarians? Are we not soul Aquarians? Like, what is this? And, you know, is it soul Aquarians, extended family? And, you know, the way the press was back in the day, like, something happens now. And then, you know, it comes out, like, three months later. So at the time when we're taking this photo, um, it was, like, March. and. You know, we're just like, all right, we'll, we'll think of something. It, it just left my mind then. And next thing I know, like in Chicago, all hell is breaking loose. Like Erica's like, yo, man, I'm not an Aquarian. Like, why is this like I'm an Aquarian? And most was like, yo, man, I don't like this. And Tip what like, everybody was like upset. And kind of the very thing that I was trying to avoid By just having my own story, you know, it happened anyway, right? Right. (laughs) Including everyone, and then it's like the movement slowly eroded. Right when that shit came out, even though Erica's Mama's Gun comes out in November 2000, you know. And even though other albums come out and follow-up albums came out, you know, we still did phrenology and electric uh, circus and some of stuff, you know, at like it, the movement didn't stop, right. but definitely some air was let out the sails. And, um, you know, and it's a shame because at the end of the day, you know the question is: Are we better off than we were when we were a collective? And you know that question remains to be seen. But there's such a void out there, and you know, it'd be shame if this weren't were for naught.
0: I mean, a lot came out of those couple of years.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's it's still you know, and it's still coming out. But you know, so it's. Who knows? Like maybe I don't. I just don't want to wait till we're like sixty, trying to get it, you know get it together.
0: Well, I I want to shift from that because probably a few years after that. Actually, now it's fast forward in a little while. But I ran into you at a festival in I think it was like North Carolina. Do you remember this? When we I, actually, I think it was I we flights got canceled. I ended up in like some weird SUV with Tariq. And we had to drive all the way out to somewhere in North Carolina. Anyway, I show up, then you're like, hey, man, hey, man, I need to talk to you about something. I'm like, okay. And you're like, uh, so the roots are retiring. And I'm like, huh? You mean the Asheville? <laughs> yep, yep. Was it the Asheville it Mountain was an Asheville, Yes, Asheville Mountain like Festival or whatever, which was a complete shit show. Uh, I think, It was? Well, I, I think you guys played, and it was fine. And then George Clinton, I think- I remember we were supposed to play after George Clinton and he didn't show up for like hours and hours. And then he had a band that was like local cats. <laughs> and it was oh, like, no. it was a mess. But I think you guys played earlier. But I remember you telling me, uh, yeah, we're retiring. Um, we're going to do, We're gonna and Jimmy Fallon's taking over the Tonight Show. And I'm like, huh? What? What's going on? Uh, of course, what actually took place after that seemed to be the opposite of retirement, right?
1: Yeah, I mean in my mind in my mind it was like we were the eight days a week band. We were you know, ever since 1994 it's been anywhere between 175 shows and 240 shows a year. So imagine from like 1994 all the way to 2008 where nine months out of the year, you're on the road constantly. Yeah, like from, you know, from traveling and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, traveling, exactly. And it was just, it was, it was wear and tear. Yeah. It was, sure. it was just like a lot of tear on us. At the time, I seriously thought that, you know, because the way they sold it to us was like, hey, guys, look, it's just like, you know, 12 second bumpers and you get the same money you make going on the road. And, you know, just some 12-second bumpers. You do five of those. Then you go home. Easy peasy. Yeah. So to me, it sounded like a funeral. A good funeral. I was like, whoa, this is a great way to die, man. Great. Because what I did want to do was I didn't want to be... There was a point. There was a show in which Run DMC opened for us. Yeah. And that scared the shit out of me. (laughs) We got Fallon because I... I had, I, had, I was the musical super, uh not supervisor, the musical director for season two and season three of Chappelle's show. So when Chappelle goes AWOL on season three, everyone's asked out and has to get new jobs. And so Neil Brennan's like, okay, well, let me get a nine-to-five. I'm either going to direct a movie or I'm going to try my hand at television. So it just so happens that Lauren Michaels calls up Britain and says, yo, uh, you know, Jimmy's going to be the new Conan O'Brien. Um, would you like to direct? And he says, no, but I'll be consultant. And just as a joke, he says, and um, well, not even as a joke. This is what he said. He said, and as far as musical stuff is concerned, the best guys to definitely ask, mm, you should ask the roots. Ellipsis, because they know the best guys that play music in sentence. Jimmy just took the first half of that sentence just as the roots
0: yeah. period. Yeah. So Did you know Jimmy at that point?
1: Not really. I mean I knew of him because like Ronson Ronson was part of the, uh, the electric lady circle. Right. Right. It was by like the the last quarter of the game now like Nick Costa's hanging around and all, You know, all that other stuff So, you know, in the daytime I'm doing whatever, gigs In the day Waiting for, like, Deer Common at nighttime And so, um That's how I knew about Fallon So the thing is, is that Tariq had already fell in love And moved to Los Angeles to live with uh, his wife And child And so um, but you know, the, the gigs still happen, 200 plus days out of the year. Right. Now Tariq lives in LA. Uh, I've been begging my manager to let me live in LA as well, because I saw like squandering my money on like hotels and stuff for, like 15,000 a pop, um, kind of squanderous. And, um, of course they were like, no. But I persisted, and then by four years later, they're like, okay, fine, you win. Get your damn place. So I got my place, and sure enough, like, I never moved in because I'm on the road 24-7. And um, so cut the Grammys 2008. I finally get my place furnished in L.A., and we have a gig out there, a Spring Fling gig. Not a Spring Fling, like a, a college gig. UCLA and um happened to see Jimmy, I believe, at a rest or like a stop sign or whatever. It was like weird, beep beep. And he's like, Yo, I want to ask you a question. Did Brennan Brennan tell you about it? Say, Yeah, he told us. It's like, We're doing a show to UCLA. You want to come? And in my mind, I, I knew we weren't going to take that gig, you know what I mean? Like. We just got to Paradise. Like, we're now making good-ass money. Why would we stop this momentum to do this gig? And But just to be in good standing with him on the show, when we have records out, she so yeah, did you know, come on the show, see it, whatever. So he comes by, and, you know, he's Jimmy Fallon. He's excitable. He's all this, you know, everything that you see on TV. I step away from him. 15 minutes, yo. 15 minutes to do a quickie interview with a college newspaper. And I come back. This motherfucker has all eight roots doing the eight is enough human pyramid thing, like bring it on. Like, <laughs> the human pyramid thing. <laughs> wow. And the thing that impressed me the most was that Tariq was on the bottom row. Like, like, and Tariq, if you know me and you know Tariq, Tariq, everything Tariq wears is like worth $900,000. Like his denim, his, like, he can't be bothered to, there's no such thing as used clothes in Tariq. So the thing is, I'm like, wait, Tariq's on the bottom row and this Japanese denim, he would never do that shit. And... I looked at my manager, Rich, who's, you know, like super cynical, and he's like, Yo, we're not getting rid of this motherfucker no time soon, are we? And he just looks like, No, mm, doesn't look like it. <laughs> so we're stuck with this dude, aren't we? He says, I'm afraid so. Literally, like, I don't, and that's the thing. I don't know what, I do not know what he did to disarm them like that, there was no turning back. Like, I had no plans. I had no plans whatsoever to take my offer seriously. All I wanted to do was to make nice. Make nice and make sure we had a landing place to do our show because, you know, with Conan, it was almost like every other album we can get on the show. You know, but at least, like, with a good relationship with Jimmy Fallon, we could probably get on the show all the time. And that's all, that's the only reason why I invited him. Then eight months later, like, showtime. And it's one of the best things we've ever done. Like, I I enjoy it. People ask all day, are you sure you enjoy that? Yes, I do. Like, everything I ever learned in my life was so that I could do this show.
0: And more. It makes perfect sense Um, once you guys settled into it. And, I mean, the way that your mind works and i've seen you guys i've been up in there when you guys have been rehearsing stuff and like i can't really now i can't see you not in that position because you like you said all the records you grew up on all of the soul train studying all of the you know it makes perfect sense that you're cueing all these things i
1: knew that people were head scratching and people were like wait how and but that's the thing it's like I wanted to be underestimated. Right, right. I wanted to be underestimated just so that when there was um it wasn't BuzzFeed, but I forget what journalists said like. And further, I'm just made news. Um he's like, Can we talk about watching the roots take on this late night cake? It's like watching Miles Davis uh be a subway busker <laughs> and like <laughs> I was like, yeah, great, good, good, good. That's the energy I want. I'm gonna bust everybody's ass doing this job, and so I mean, in um,
0: in certain ways, I wouldn't. It's weird to say this, but I mean, I think it legitimized Jimmy to a certain degree, and I I think Jimmy grew into the role and is killing it. But in the beginning, a lot of us were like.
1: Yeah, this this brought him credit, but this brought him time to grow. Yeah. yeah. I felt like it brought him time to grow. And yeah. I didn't mind that. Cause on the other hand, um, for us, oh man, can you imagine Bucket listing every week somebody you'd like to play all day sucker with Stevie Wonder. Right, right. And play because the night with, with, with Springsteen to play an Englishman in New York with Sting. Like for Sting to have your phone number and be friends. The funniest part of this gig was um, I got a I got a I got a call from Mick Jagger once, and I thought it was Jimmy fucking with me. <laughs> I was like, why, "Why are you fucking with me?" He said, "No, nah, man, it's Mick Jagger. It's Mick Jagger. Uh, what'd you do in the studio session?" And I, I said something dumb like, "I said, oh, why? Because fucking like Charlie Watts is somewhere like fishing somewhere." In, yeah. in in Kalamazoo, Michigan or something. He said, well, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I need you to do this <laughs> session. I was like, Jimmy, stop fucking with me, man. He said, I said, wait, wait. I said, okay, if you're not playing, I said, call me back in like one minute. And I just hung up for him. And then I called Jimmy up myself. I said, like, yo, man, why are you doing this to me? And he's like, what are you talking about? Why am I doing this to you? I'm like, why did you? And then, oh, shit. I said, hang on one second, Jimmy. He said, is this Amir? This is Mick Jagger. And then I realized, holy shit, this is Mick Jagger. Like, (laughs) So did you visualize
0: any of this happening from the show?
1: Dude, no. Yeah. I I told, like, the way that I described it to you at that festival. Yeah. Like, I just thought, I just thought, look, this shit ain't going to last forever. This shit's not going to last forever. Can we at least find a dignified way to die? Like I immediately went to my own funeral and was just like, let me just find a dignified way to die. Like, you know, Kanye's king now, so let's just I'm gonna get, you know, I don't wanna be on the neo soul revival tour, none of that shit. And instead This wound up planting seeds. Like, literally, day one, I get invited to the first day on the gig. My homework is uh, seeing an off Broadway failout production, of which, you know, just to hear failout on Broadway, I'm like, what? Like, what spirit fingers and water got no enemy? Like, how does that work with jazz hands? And I was about to not go. My friends like, but the Anteballas are the band, and I saw it. And somehow I talked myself into the producer role.
0: I actually ran into you at that. I don't know if I, you probably went to it a few times, but I ran into you at the the off Broadway when it was at that. I forget what the name of that theater was. Uh, right.
1: Well, then yeah. you, you then you must have seen because that oh, was I saw it, it a bunch
2: of times. <laughs> that I was saw it there
0: a in the last yeah.
1: week run, and I begged them. I said, what do I have to do to get you guys to do this for another two weeks so that real people with money can see it? And that's when uh, I begged uh, Jay and Beyonce to go see it, and they got involved. And, you know, it was like, you know, I mean, that was – the and once that happened, then I realized, okay, this is the real reason why you're in this position, so you can do more shit like this. So then – To me, it was just about bucket listing. So then I started teaching, started writing books, started, you know, working on movie scores and other projects. And, you know, then Hamilton comes along and then other doors open. So, you know, I'm just enjoying it. It's
0: funny uh, because three months ago, I was cursing the road. And now two months into quarantine, I'm like,
1: yeah, I'll say that the grass is always already greener on the other side. Like, believe it or not, and this is the thing that I'm wrestling with, um, you know, as for me, yes, I do have, like, I have daily concerns of, you know, I have a lot of friends that are in the front line, a lot of friends that were nurses and doctors and in the medical fields, um, you know, in general, you know, family members that I'm taking care of that are easily vulnerable, and, you know, kind of in the, in the, in the, in the, in the way of, uh, you know, in the line of fire, as for me personally, like, this is, this is, uh you know, some of the, one of the first opportunities of rest I've ever got in my adult life, um, which is a great recharge because it's like, you know, the period before you start, you start your career as a professional musician where, you know, you put like all your ideas in your first two records because you have your whole lifetime to plan for them. Well, that's how it is now. So it's like I've not had so much time. Where I just get to imagine like like a, like really plan and, and imagine and embrace boredom, this is kind of what like my fourth book um uh my fifth book uh creative quest I'm sorry, my fourth book uh was about the idea of like embracing boredom and silence and solace and and quiet. Quietness. Um, this is happening now. So, like,
0: well, a lot of the best ideas are born in those moments. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard to create when you're moving all the time, you know?
1: I, I'm saying that if there's not an upsurge of true brilliant creativity, like, the same way, like, right now, uh, the baby boom. The quarantine baby boom in my personal life now is up to, I think my 11th person has now just announced their pregnancy. Yep. So I also expect some of the most clever innovations in art and that stuff to happen as well. Yeah. Like if this doesn't happen, then shame on us. Because like literally the tools are there. And I know and I know it's like well with the stress of everyday life and survival and da, 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 but it's like some of the best art was also created out of turmoil times. Definitely if you will. Definitely. So I, I expect the same. I have expectations for those.
0: And I think also the slowing down is making us appreciate the things around us. You know what I mean? The people around us. I know when you've been DJing, uh, it's kind of funny when you've been, by the way, thank you for doing your DJ sets because, like, I go on there uh, pretty much almost every time. And, like... I see – it's funny because it's also like I see different friends that are watching and, like, we start conversing. And, like, it obviously brings back Brooklyn Bowl nights because, you know, I used to live down the street and see you there all the time. I'd always pop in there. But I, like, run mm-hmm. into – like, Ginny was on there. We started talking. And other friends of mine like, yo, crap. Yeah. It's like we're at <laughs> – this is weird virtual. We're back in the Brooklyn Bowl. Um but, you know, it's, it's making us, like, appreciate those times and maybe in certain cases we'll embrace those times moving forward a little bit more. Or even just, like, a lot of the conversations with my friends right now are, like, hours long because we actually have time and we're not running from this thing to the other thing. And um, I hope that some of those things actually sustain when things go back to quote unquote normal things go back to normal yeah, yeah I, mean. the, I
1: don't think this I don't think we will ever go back to what we know know it as I right. mean yeah, the freedom of movement might be different, but definitely the the mindset will be different. I know that for me um, i'm no doubt going to plan you know, uh, life different so that I'm prepared next time, but not to mention like, yeah, like I want to now build a community and maybe this helped me realize that I have to do it with some sort of urgency, you know,
0: we might we might find out the quest love now is living in uh upstate New York and on a farm somewhere, but exactly. <laughs> that's where I am right now. So <laughs> you know, well, make sure you got a set up so we could do a little trio gig up there or something like that.
1: Dog, you, I'm ahead of you. They're like, I... trust me, I got you, man. I got
0: you. All right, definitely. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking all this time. I know you're crazy, crazy busy, and this has been like the best interview. Um, getting it, it, inside all the.
1: Oh, thanks, Akars, man. You know you're my man, so that I got, I got to I gotta do that.
0: Definitely, appreciate thank you, man. I appreciate it, thank and uh, I hope that I get to see you DJing uh, as much as you have been. That's been, that's been
1: a, a treat. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, stay safe up there, man. Thank you. I will. <laughs> All All I right, we'll talk to you, I'll see you. later. Peace. Once again, I want to thank Quest Love for being on the show. Uh, It was so hard to pick a song for the outro because there's so many great songs that these guys created. Uh, So I I urge you guys to go over to Spotify, Um, if you look up this episode, there will be a playlist connected to it that will have a bunch of songs from this period and from the Soul Aquarians and the Ritz. However, I did pick one song and it's called Send It On from the D'Angelo album Voodoo featuring the Soul Aquarians. krasno plus one is hosted by me eric krasno executive producers are rjb and christina collins audio production by matt dwyer produced by myself and ben baruch of Eleven Eleven group all original music is by me and most of which are instrumentals from my album telescope under the artist name kraz this podcast is presented by osiris media if you'd like to get in touch with us email kraz plus one at gmail That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.